Chapter Seventeen of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Five The Production of Absolute and Relative Surplus Value. Chapter Seventeen changes of magnitude in the price of labor-power and in surplus-value. The value of labor-power is determined by the value of the necessaries of life, habitually required by the average laborer. The quantity of these necessaries is known at any given epoch of a given society, and can therefore be treated as a constant magnitude. What changes is the value of this quantity. There are, besides, two other factors that enter into the determination of the value of labor-power. 1. The expenses of developing that power, which expenses vary with the mode of production, the other, its natural diversity, the difference between the labor-power of men and women, of children and adults. The employment of these different sorts of labor-power, an employment which is, in its turn, made necessary by the mode of production, makes a great difference in the cost of maintaining the family of the laborer, and in the value of the labor-power of the adult male. Both these factors, however, are excluded in the following investigation. Note. Note in the third German edition. The case considered at pages 300 to 302 is here, of course, omitted. F.E. End note. I assume, 1. That commodities are sold at their value. 2. That the price of labor-power rises occasionally above its value, but never sinks below it. On this assumption we have seen that the relative magnitudes of surplus-value and of price of labor-power are determined by three circumstances, the length of the working day, or the extensive magnitude of labor, two, the normal intensity of labor, its intensive magnitude, whereby a given quantity of labor is expended in a given time, three, the productiveness of labor, whereby the same quantum of labor yields, in a given time, a greater or less quantum of product, dependent on the degree of development in the conditions of production. Very different combinations are clearly possible, according as one of the three factors is constant and two variable, or two constant and one variable, or lastly, all three simultaneously variable. And the number of these combinations is augmented by the fact that, when these factors simultaneously vary, the amount and direction of their respective variations may differ. In what follows the chief combinations alone are considered. Section 1 length of the working day and intensity of labor constant, productiveness of labor variable. On these assumptions the value of labor power and the magnitude of surplus value are determined by three laws. 1. A working day of given length always creates the same amount of value, no matter how the productiveness of labor, and with it the mass of the product and the price of each single commodity produced, may vary. If the value created by a working day of twelve hours, say six shillings, then, although the mass of the articles produced varies with the productiveness of labor, the only result is that the value represented by six shillings is spread over a greater or less number of articles. 2. Surplus value and the value of labor power vary in opposite directions. A variation in the productiveness of labor, its increase or diminution, causes a variation in the opposite direction in the value of labor power, and in the same direction in surplus value. The value created by a working day of twelve hours is a constant quantity, say six shillings. This constant quantity is the sum of the surplus value plus the value of the labor power, which latter value the laborer replaces by an equivalent. 
It is self-evident that if a constant quantity consists of two parts, neither of them can increase without the other diminishing. Let the two parts at starting be equal. Three shillings value of labor-power, three shillings surplus value. Then the value of the labor-power cannot rise from three shillings to four, without the surplus value falling from three shillings to two, and the surplus value cannot rise from three shillings to four, without the value of labor-power falling from three shillings to two. Under these circumstances, therefore, no change can take place in the absolute magnitude, either of the surplus value, or of the value of labor-power, without a simultaneous change in their relative magnitudes, i.e., relatively to each other. It is impossible for them to rise or fall simultaneously. Further, the value of labor-power cannot fall, and consequently surplus-value cannot rise, without a rise in the productiveness of labor. For instance, in the above case, the value of the labor-power cannot sink from three shillings to two, unless an increase in the productiveness of labor makes it possible to produce in four hours the same quantity of necessaries as previously required six hours to produce. On the other hand, the value of the labor-power cannot rise from three shillings to four, without a decrease in the productiveness of labor, whereby eight hours become requisite to produce the same quantity of necessaries, for the production of which six hours previously sufficed. It follows from this that an increase in the productiveness of labor causes a fall in the value of labor-power, and a consequent rise in surplus-value, while, on the other hand, a decrease in such productiveness causes a rise in the value of labor-power, and a fall in surplus-value. In formulating this law, Ricardo overlooked one circumstance. Although a change in the magnitude of the surplus value or surplus labor causes a change in the opposite direction in the magnitude of the value of labor power, or in the quantity of necessary labor, it by no means follows that they vary in the same proportion. They do increase or diminish by the same quantity, but their proportional increase or diminution depends on their original magnitude before the change in the productiveness of labor took place. If the value of the labor-power be four shillings, or the necessary labor-time eight hours, and the surplus-value be two shillings, or the surplus-labor four hours, and if in consequence of an increase in the productiveness of labor, the value of the labor-power fall to three shillings, or the necessary labor to six hours, the surplus-value will rise to three shillings, or the surplus-labor to six hours. The same quantity, one shilling or two hours, is added in one case and subtracted in the other but the proportional change of magnitude is different in each case. While the value of the labor-power falls from four shillings to three, i.e., by one quarter or twenty-five per cent, the surplus-value rises from two shillings to three, i.e., by one-half or fifty per cent. It therefore follows that the proportional increase or diminution in surplus-value, consequent on a given change in the productiveness of labor, depends on the original magnitude of that portion of the working day which embodies itself in surplus-value. The smaller that portion, the greater is the proportional change. The greater that portion, the less is the proportional change. Third, Increase or diminution in surplus-value is always consequent on, and never the cause of, the corresponding diminution or increase in the value of labor-power. Note. To this third law, McCullough has made, amongst others, this absurd addition, that a rise in surplus-value, unaccompanied by a fall in the value of labor-power, can occur through the abolition of taxes payable by the capitalist. The abolition of such taxes makes no change whatever in the quantity of surplus-value that the capitalist extorts at first hand from the laborer. It only alters the proportion in which that surplus-value is divided between himself and third persons. 
it consequently makes no alteration whatever in the relation between the surplus value and value of labor power. McCullough's exception, therefore, proves only his misapprehension of the rule, a misfortune that as often happens to him in the vulgarization of Ricardo, as it does to J. B. Say in the vulgarization of Adam Smith. End note. Since the working day is constant in magnitude, and is represented by a value of constant magnitude, since, to every variation in the magnitude of surplus value, there corresponds an inverse variation in the value of labor-power, and since the value of labor-power cannot change, except in consequence of a change in the productiveness of labor, it clearly follows, under these conditions, that every change of magnitude in surplus value arises from an inverse change of magnitude in the value of labor-power. If, then, as we have already seen, there can be no change of absolute magnitude in the value of labor-power, and in surplus value, unaccompanied by a change in their relative magnitudes, so now it follows that no change in their relative magnitudes is possible, without a previous change in the absolute magnitude of the value of labor-power. According to the third law, a change in the magnitude of surplus value presupposes a movement in the value of labor-power, which movement is brought about by a variation in the productiveness of labor. The limit of this change is given by the altered value of labor-power. Nevertheless, even when circumstances allow the law to operate, subsidiary movements may occur. For example, if in consequence of the increased productiveness of labor, the value of labor-power falls from four shillings to three, or the necessary labor-time from eight hours to six, the price of labor-power may possibly not fall below three shillings eightpence, three shillings sixpence, or three shillings twopence, and the surplus value consequently not rise above three shillings fourpence, three shillings sixpence, or three shillings tenpence. The amount of this fall, the lowest limit of which is three shillings, the new value of labor-power, depends on the relative weight, which the pressure of capital on the one side and the resistance of the laborer on the other throws into the scale. The value of labor-power is determined by the value of a given quantity of necessaries, it is the value, and not the mass of these necessaries, that varies with the productiveness of labor. It is, however, possible that, owing to an increase of productiveness, both the laborer and the capitalist may simultaneously be able to appropriate a greater quantity of these necessaries, without any change in the price of labor-power, or in surplus value. If the value of labor-power be three shillings, and the necessary labor-time amount to six hours, if the surplus value likewise be three shillings, and the surplus labor six hours, then if the productiveness of labor were doubled without altering the ratio of necessary labor to surplus labor, there would be no change of magnitude in surplus value and price of labor power. The only result would be that each of them would represent twice as many use values as before, these use values being twice as cheap as before. Although labor power would be unchanged in price, it would be above its value. If, however, the price of labor-power had fallen, not to one shilling sixpence, the lowest possible point consistent with its new value, but to two shillings tenpence, or two shillings sixpence, still this lower price would represent an increased mass of necessaries. In this way it is possible, with an increasing productiveness of labor, for the price of labor-power to keep on falling, and yet this fall to be accompanied by a constant growth in the mass of the laborer's means of subsistence. But even in such a case, the fall in the value of labor-power would cause a corresponding rise of surplus-value, and thus the abyss between the laborer's position and that of the capitalist would keep widening. Note. 
when an alteration takes place in the productiveness of industry, and that either more or less is produced by a given quantity of labor and capital, the proportion of wages may obviously vary, whilst the quantity, which that proportion represents, remains the same, or the quantity may vary, whilst the proportion remains the same. Outlines of Political Economy, etc., page 67. Endnote. Ricardo was the first who accurately formulated the three laws we have above stated. But he falls into the following errors. 1. He looks upon the special conditions under which these laws hold good as the general and sole conditions of capitalist production. He knows no change, either in the length of the working day, or in the intensity of labor. Consequently, with him there can be only one variable factor, viz. the productiveness of labor. 2 and this error vitiates his analysis much more than one, he has not, any more than have the other economists, investigated surplus-value as such, independently of its particular forms, such as profit, rent, etc. He therefore confounds together the laws of the rate of surplus-value and the laws of the rate of profit. The rate of profit is, as we have already said, the ratio of the surplus-value to the total capital advanced, the rate of surplus-value is the ratio of the surplus-value to the variable part of that capital. Assume that a capital C of five hundred pounds is made up of raw material, instruments of labor, etc. C to the amount of four hundred pounds, and of wages V to the amount of one hundred pounds, and further that the surplus-value S equals one hundred pounds. Then we have rate of surplus-value S over V is one hundred over one hundred pounds equals one hundred percent. But the rate of profit, S over C, 100 over 500 pounds, is 20%. It is besides obvious that the rate of profit may depend on circumstances that in no way affect the rate of surplus value. I shall show, in Book 3, that with a given rate of surplus value, we may have any number of rates of profit, and that various rates of surplus value may, under given conditions, express themselves in a single rate of profit. Section 2. Working day constant, productiveness of labor constant, intensity of labor variable. Increased intensity of labor means increased expenditure of labor in a given time. Hence, a working day of more intense labor is embodied in more products than is one of less intense labor, the length of each day being the same. Increased productiveness of labor also, it is true, will supply more products in a given working day. But in this latter case, the value of each single product falls, for it costs less labor than before. In the former case, that value remains unchanged, for each article costs the same labor as before. Here we have an increase in the number of products, unaccompanied by a fall in their individual prices. As their number increases, so does the sum of their prices. But in the case of increased productiveness, a given value is spread over a greater mass of products. Hence the length of the working day being constant, a day's labor of increased intensity will be incorporated in an increased value, and the value of money remaining unchanged in more money. The value created varies with the extent to which the intensity of labor deviates from its normal intensity in the society. A given working day, therefore, no longer creates a constant, but a variable value. In a day of twelve hours of ordinary intensity, the value created is, say, six shillings, but with increased intensity, the value created may be seven, eight, or more shillings. It is clear that, if the value created by a day's labor increases from, say, six to eight shillings, then the two parts into which this value is divided, viz., price of labor power and surplus value, may both of them increase simultaneously, and either equally or unequally. They may both simultaneously increase from three shillings to four. 
Here, the rise in the price of labor power does not necessarily imply, here, the rise in the price of labor power does not necessarily imply that the price has risen above the value of labor power. On the contrary, the rise in price may be accompanied by a fall in value. This occurs whenever the rise in price of labor power does not compensate for its increased wear and tear. We know that, with transitory exceptions, a change in the productiveness of labor does not cause any change in the value of labor power, nor, consequently, in the magnitude of surplus value, unless the products of the industries affected are articles habitually consumed by the laborers. In the present case this condition no longer applies. For, when the variation is either in the duration or in the intensity of labor, there is always a corresponding change in the magnitude of the value created, independently of the nature of the article in which that value is embodied. If the intensity of labor were to increase simultaneously and equally in every branch of industry, then the new and higher degree of intensity would become the normal degree for the society, and would, therefore, cease to be taken account of. But still, even then, the intensity of labor would be different in different countries, and would modify the international application of the law of value. The more intense working day of one nation would be represented by a greater sum of money than would the less intense day of another nation. Note. All things being equal, the English manufacturer can turn out a considerably larger amount of work in a given time than a foreign manufacturer, so much as to counterbalance the difference of the working days, between sixty hours a week here, and seventy-two or eighty elsewhere. Report of the Inspector of Factories for the 31st October, 1855, page 65. The most infallible means for reducing this qualitative difference between the English and Continental working hour would be a law shortening quantitatively the length of the working day in Continental factories. End note. Section 3. Productiveness and intensity of labor, constant. Length of the working day, variable. The working day may vary in two ways. It may be made either longer or shorter. From our present data, and within the limits of the assumptions made on previously, we obtain the following laws. 1. The working day creates a greater or less amount of value in proportion to its length, thus a variable and not a constant quantity of value. 2. Every change in the relation between the magnitudes of surplus value and the value of labor power arises from a change in the absolute magnitude of the surplus labor, and consequently of the surplus value. 3. The absolute value of labor power can only change in consequence of the reaction exercised by the prolongation of surplus labor upon the wear and tear of labor power. Every change in this absolute value is therefore the effect, but never the cause, of a change in the magnitude of surplus value. We begin with the case in which the working day is shortened. 1. A shortening of the working day under the conditions given above leaves the value of labor power, and with it the necessary labor time, unaltered. It reduces the surplus labor and surplus value. Along with the absolute magnitude of the latter, its relative magnitude also falls, i.e., its magnitude relatively to the value of labor power, whose magnitude remains unaltered. Only by lowering the price of labor power below its value could the capitalist save himself harmless. All the usual arguments against the shortening of the working day assume that it takes place under the conditions we have here supposed to exist, but in reality the very contrary is the case. A change in the productiveness and intensity of labor either precedes or immediately follows a shortening of the working day. Note. There are compensating circumstances which the working of the Ten Hours Act has brought to light. 
Report of the Inspector of Factories for the 31st October, 1848, page 7. End note. 2. Lengthening of the working day. Let the necessary labor time be six hours, or the value of labor power three shillings. Also let the surplus labor be six hours, or the surplus value three shillings. The whole working day then amounts to twelve hours, and is embodied in a value of six shillings. If now the working day be lengthened two hours, and the price of labor power remain unaltered, the surplus value increases both absolutely and relatively. Although there is no absolute change in the value of labor power, it suffers a relative fall. Under the conditions assumed in one, there could not be a change of relative magnitude in the value of labor power without a change in its absolute magnitude. Here, on the contrary, the change of relative magnitude in the value of labor power is the result of the change of absolute magnitude in surplus value. Since the value in which a day's labor is embodied increases with the length of that day, it is evident that the surplus value and the price of labor may simultaneously increase, either by equal or unequal quantities. This simultaneous increase is therefore possible in two cases. One, the actual lengthening of the working day. The other, an increase in the intensity of labor unaccompanied by such lengthening. When the working day is prolonged, the price of labor power may fall below its value, although that price be nominally unchanged or even rise. The value of a day's labor power is, as will be remembered, estimated from its normal average duration, or from the normal duration of life among the laborers, and from corresponding normal transformations of organized bodily matter into motion, in conformity with the nature of man. Up to a certain point, the increased wear and tear of labor power, inseparable from a lengthening working day, may be compensated by higher wages. But beyond this point, the wear and tear increases in geometrical progression, and every condition suitable for the normal reproduction and functioning of labor power is suppressed. The price of labor power and the degree of its exploitation cease to be commensurable quantities. Note. The amount of labor which a man had undergone in the course of twenty-four hours might be approximately arrived at by an examination of the chemical changes which had taken place in his body. Changed forms and manner indicating the anterior exercise of dynamic force. Grove. On the correlation of physical forces. End note. Section 4. Simultaneous Variations in the Duration, Productiveness, and Intensity of Labor It is obvious that a large number of combinations are here possible. Any two of the factors may vary, and the third remain constant, or all three may vary at once. They may vary either in the same or in different degrees, in the same or in opposite directions, with the result that the variations counteract one another, either wholly or in part. Nevertheless, the analysis of every possible case is easy in view of the results given in 1, 2, and 3. The effect of every possible combination may be found by treating each factor in turn as variable, and the other two constant for the time being. And that, briefly, but two important cases. a. Diminishing productiveness of labor with the simultaneous lengthening of the working day. In speaking of diminishing productiveness of labor, we here refer to diminution in those industries whose products determine the value of labor power. Such a diminution, for example, as results from decreasing fertility of the soil and from the corresponding dearness of its products. Take the working day at twelve hours and the value created by it at six shillings, of which one half replaces the value of the labor power, or in the other forms the surplus value. Suppose, in consequence of the increased dearness of the products of the soil, that the value of labor power rises from three shillings to four, and therefore the necessary labor time from six hours to eight. 
If there be no change in the length of the working day, the surplus labor would fall from six hours to four, the surplus value from three shillings to two. If the day be lengthened by two hours, i.e., from twelve hours to fourteen, the surplus labor remains at six hours, the surplus value at three shillings, but the surplus value decreased compared with the value of labor power, as measured by the necessary labor time. If the day be lengthened by four hours, viz., from twelve hours to sixteen, the proportional magnitudes of surplus value and value of labor power, of surplus labor and necessary labor, continue unchanged but the absolute magnitude of surplus value rises from three shillings to four, that of the surplus labor from six hours to eight, an increment of thirty-three and one-third per cent. Therefore, with diminishing productiveness of labor and a simultaneous lengthening of the working day, the absolute magnitude of surplus value may continue unaltered, at the same time that its relative magnitude diminishes, its relative magnitude may continue unchanged, at the same time that its absolute magnitude increases, and provided the lengthening of the day be sufficient, both may increase. In the period between 1799 and 1815, the increasing price of provisions led in England to a nominal rise in wages. Although the real wages, expressed in the necessaries of life, fell. From this fact, West and Ricardo drew the conclusion that the diminution in the productiveness of agricultural labor had brought about a fall in the rate of surplus value, and they made this assumption of a fact that existed only in their imaginations the starting-point of important investigations into the relative magnitude of wages, profits, and rent. But as a matter of fact, surplus value had, at that time, thanks to the increased intensity of labor, and to the prolongation of the working day, increased both in absolute and relative magnitude. This was the period in which the right to prolong the hours of labor to an outrageous extent was established, the period that was especially characterized by an accelerated accumulation of capital here, by pauperism there. Note. Corn and labor rarely march quite abreast, but there is an obvious limit, beyond which they cannot be separated. With regard to the unusual exertions made by the laboring classes in periods of dearness, which produce the fall of wages noticed in the evidence, namely, before the Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry, 1814 to 1815, they are most meritorious in the individuals, and certainly favor the growth of capital. But no man of humanity could wish to see them constant and unremitted. They are most admirable as a temporary relief, but if they were constantly in action, effects of a similar kind would result from them, as from the population of a country being pushed to the very extreme limits of its food. Malthus, Inquiry into the Nature and Progress of Rent, London, 1815, page 48. Note. All honour to Malthus that he lays stress on the lengthening of the hours of labour, a fact to which he elsewhere in his pamphlet draws attention, while Ricardo and others, in face of the most notorious facts, make invariability in the length of the working day the groundwork of all their investigations. But the conservative interests which Malthus served prevented him from seeing that an unlimited prolongation of the working day, combined with an extraordinary development of machinery, and the exploitation of women and children, must inevitably have made a great portion of the working class supernumerary, particularly whenever the war should have ceased, and the monopoly of England in the markets of the world should have come to an end. It was, of course, far more convenient, and much more in conformity with the interests of the ruling classes, whom Malthus adored like a true priest, to explain this overpopulation by the eternal laws of nature, rather than by the historical laws of capitalist production. End note. Note. 
a principal cause of the increase of capital during the war proceeded from the greater exertions and perhaps the greater privations of the laboring classes the most numerous in every society more women and children were compelled by necessitous circumstances to enter upon laborious occupations and former workmen were from the same cause obliged to devote a greater portion of their time to increase production essays on political economy in which are illustrated the principal causes of the present national distress london eighteen thirty page two forty eight end note b increasing intensity and productiveness of labor with simultaneous shortening of the working day increased productiveness and greater intensity of labor both have a like effect they both augment the mass of articles produced in a given time both therefore shorten that portion of the working day which the laborer needs to produce his means of subsistence or their equivalent the minimum length of the working day is fixed by this necessary but contractile portion of it if the whole working day were to shrink to the length of this portion surplus labor would vanish a consumption utterly impossible under the regime of capital only by suppressing the capitalist form of production could the length of the working day be reduced to the necessary labor time but even in that case the latter would extend its limits on the one hand because the notion of means of subsistence would considerably expand and the laborer would lay claim to an altogether different standard of life on the other hand because a part of what is now surplus labor would then count as necessary labor i mean the labor of forming a fund for reserve and accumulation the more the productiveness of labor increases the more can the working day be shortened and the more the working day is shortened the more can the intensity of labor increase from a social point of view the productiveness increases in the same ratio as the economy of labor which in its turn includes not only economy of the means of production but also the avoidance of all useless labor the capitalist mode of production while on the one hand enforcing economy in individual business on the other hand begets by its anarchical system of competition the most outrageous squandering of labor power and of the social means of production not to mention the creation of a vast number of employments at present indispensable but in themselves superfluous the intensity and productiveness of labor being given the time which society is bound to devote to the material production is shorter and as a consequence the time at its disposal for the free development intellectual and social of the individual is greater in proportion as the work is more and more evenly divided among all the able-bodied members of society and as a particular class is more and more deprived of the power to shift the natural burden of labor from its own shoulders to those of another layer of society in this direction the shortening of the working day finds at last a limit in the generalization of labor in capitalist society spare time is acquired for one class by converting the whole lifetime of the masses into labor time end of part five chapter seventeen